This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquariumania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anok, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Seagrist Farms, one of the world's largest wholesale ornamental fish distributors, supplies over a thousand pet shops, public aquariums, and research institutions each week with aquarium livestock, aquatic plants, herps, and other small animals, and live food. Sandy Moore, president of Seagrist Farms, has been a hobbyist her entire life and also has been at the forefront helping to keep the aquarium trade alive nationally and internationally. Join us for a fascinating conversation as Sandy discusses Seagrist Farms, her career, and the many challenges the aquarium industry is currently facing. We'll be right back after these messages. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories, party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photoprop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Sandy Moore, president of Seagrass Farms. Sandy, thanks so much for sharing your passion with us today. Thanks for having me on, Roy. So I like to ask a lot of my guests some kind of personal questions. No, nothing too personal, but let's start with your entry into the hobby. Can you tell us about your first fish and your very first aquarium? Definitely. My first fish I bought at Woolworths, or my mom bought it for me at Woolworths. Thank you, Tampa Livestock. It was an albino Aeneas Corridors, and I kept it in a bed bowl. Oh, cool. So uh, how long did it, did it stay alive for a while? Or Yeah, it uh, lived a couple years, as I recall. That's awesome. And now you obviously are full bore in the hobby now. How did you kind of get interested in the aquarium hobby after that first fish? What kind of fed your passion as you were starting to grow up a little bit? Well, I moved down here when I was in, oh my gosh, in the second grade. My mom started working in in the fish farm business, worked for a number of the old-timers, uh, Ross Sokoloff, Rene LaGuardier, Sidney Lyles, Owen Segrist. So I'd always been around it, and I lived right next door to Rice's Fish Farm there in Ruskin. So I was always in the ditch collecting fish. <laughs> So what did you did you actually keep those fish as well? Did you have did you have a definitely? Bunch of yeah, I kept them in the, in ice coolers and things like that. <laughs> That's great. So you kind of had your own little uh, aquarium store. Had my own was, little menagerie. Yeah. Your um, very first job you mentioned was working at Seagrist, right? So um, that's right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How old were you, and what did they have you doing? Sure. I was 14 years old. It was during summer vacation. I worked when our farm was down in Ellington making boxes 
It was before the day of preformed styrofoam. So we lined the boxes with fiberglass insulation. So it was a tin room with no air conditioning, making boxes all day. It was pretty hot, kind of miserable. You know, we people were like a I, much smaller company then. People actually pay to be in like hot, hot, sweaty rooms now. So you, you were kind they of getting do. that for free. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Minus the fiberglass. That's true. That's true. Minus the fiberglass. Now, um, I think when we were uh, talking a little bit back and forth, you mentioned something about snakes too. Can you tell me about snakes? Sure. Another being a tomboy, I was always out in the woods. When I wasn't collecting fish, I was collecting snakes and selling them into the uh, pet trade for $5 a foot. That was a lot of money back when I was a kid. That actually is a lot. Of, that's a lot of money now. That's great. It and is. You, and, it's, and that's it, still what they're worth now. Yeah. $5. <laughs> Amazing. So what made you decide to pursue business? You know, work at Dunn and Bradstreet, which I believe you've been for a couple of years, had been for a couple of years. And then, and what brought you back into the industry? Well, I always knew that I wanted to be a businesswoman. I can't remember ever thinking of doing anything else. Dun & Bradstreet was a great experience learning how corporate America works and then coming, being able to come back to the... Because I missed working with the animals. I really enjoy the animals. So I was able to come back, bring that corporate education and apply it to our industry. And it was at the time when chain stores were just starting to, to evolve and it was helpful for the business. So there, there probably were some animals at Dun and Bradstreet, though, right? I'm guessing. I'm kidding. No animals there. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Seagrist. Uh, you, you know, you've been there quite a while, um, and, and it sounds like you have it in your blood. You worked there early on, and then you came back. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, when you first came back, what you were doing, and then how you transitioned to becoming like the bigwig? That you are sure, right absolutely. So I came back when I first worked at Seagrist, we had about 12 employees. We worked one shift starting at between 2 and 5 a.m. and ending after all the fish were packed and all the tanks were clean and, and we got to go home in the afternoon. When I came back, we had approximately 30 people. I started as a secretary receptionist. Part of my job was to process landed cost on the incoming shipments. After I had that under my belt, I would need help in buying. So I became the local buyer and then went to become the import buyer, then eventually was operations manager, then vice president, and last July became president. So just maybe just because it's kind of a cool concept that a lot of folks don't actually understand, maybe, can you explain what landed cost is? Sure. It's applying every component of freight, including box charges, air freight, customs, fish and wildlife, broker fees, breaking that down into how much it costs total per fish to get, to get them here from their point of origin. And that can add quite a bit, right? Quite a lot. Yeah. Quite a lot. At least a 40%. Okay. So what can you say in addition to the number of people, um, what, what has changed at Seagrist since you first started making boxes? What are some of the, maybe tell us a little bit about Seagrist Farms today and, and infrastructure, et cetera. Sure. When I started, it was before deregulation of the airlines. So there was every airline charged the same amount, no matter where the cargo was flying in the country. So our business model started as an all-in freight included pricing, true door pricing. Since then, since then, deregulation, not all airlines take air cargo now. Not all airlines charge the same. And the customer base has really changed. In addition to that, I think we went from using sponge filters and having to take them to the laundromat to clean them every week, went to our recirculating systems from glass tanks to acrylic tanks, from 30 people to now over 400 people. 
And you, um, you mentioned the customer base changing. So how has, um, I guess, you know, that basic aspect of the industry changed over the years for you? Our primary focus is still on uh, local fish stores because they keep us honest. They keep, they're the ones that really drive the hobby. They want new and interesting fish. They want uh, interesting solutions. But chain stores are, are a part of our business now, as is Mass, Walmart. And the chain stores, I think, have been good for the business in that they make the local fish stores step up their game. What's the most challenging and most enjoyable parts of your job? I think the most challenging thing about, about any leadership role is always people, no matter what industry you're in. The most enjoyable part about the job is also the people. I've made some really fantastic friends in this industry and in the hobby and the animals. You do quite a bit in addition to being at the helm for Seagrist. You work with a lot of other organizations because of some of the challenges that are currently being faced by the industry. I know you've had a lot of hand in trying to help out some of these with some of these issues. So uh, let's start with one of the groups, the Florida Tropical Fish Farms Association. Can you tell us a little bit about this group, what their role has been, and, and kind of how you have helped them or, or how they've helped the industry? Absolutely. Florida Tropical Fish Farmers Association was formed several decades ago because Florida is the fish farming capital of North America. There are, and Roy, you probably know this number better than I do, perhaps 100 fish farms within a 50-mile radius of where we are. The association brings those farmers together and uh, gives them access to, gives them buying power. So they have their own co-op store and they're able to face legislative challenges as a group instead of just battling them individually. My role in FTFFA has been serving on the Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council Board, representing Florida farmers and representing aquatics. So can you, I guess, maybe talk a little bit about that. I know you also work with Ornamental Fish International, and I don't know if you want to talk about those two separately, but maybe give us a, you know, a quick insight into what each of the groups is and what they do for the industry. Sure. Both um, PJAC and Ornamental Fish International are typically our lobbying organizations that lobby on behalf of the industry. PJAC does it within the U.S., and Ornamental Fish International does it on a worldwide scale. So we're able to keep up with, you know, not only what's happening here in the U.S., but what's happening in, in Europe as we look at that, knowing that, that those types of legislation will probably be coming across the pond to us. So let's start talking about some of these industry challenges. Well, maybe we'll hit one first, and then we'll, we'll have to take a quick break, and we'll come back. Yeah. But let's talk about non-native species issues, a hot-button topic, um, yes, and is. even more so. So yeah, can you tell us about some of the challenges? I heard some. I knew there were issues in Europe, but now I'm hearing about things potentially even in Michigan. Can you talk about those? Yeah, Michigan, their legislative body approved last year um, a whitelist, which is a list of allowable species only because they are worried about aquatic organisms becoming invasive within the Great Lakes. It's a real threat, of course. We're working with their Department of Natural Resources to kind of blanket allow all tropical fish because they can't overwinter in the Great Lakes and all marine fish because the Great Lakes are freshwater. And the challenge so in having a whitelist is that somebody has to enforce it. And Michigan doesn't have the money to enforce it. And the list is so lengthy that no inspector could ever possibly learn it all. Can you maybe explain what a white list is and, and compared to maybe the other types of lists that some states or countries have? Sure. A white list is the list of allowable species. So to give you an example of why it's problematic to have a white list versus having a list of things that you're not allowed is that 
the state has to keep up with new species that are found and taxonomic changes. I think there were 150 taxonomic changes to freshwater fish last year. Maine installed a whitelist in 1970, and that list has not been updated at all to date. So as fish, new fish are found, they're not allowed to, to bring them in. And as the taxonomy changes, they become disallowed. So that, yeah, I definitely see the issues with that. And so I, I guess it's much more simple to have an updated prohibited list then. Is that correct? Exactly. Right. If there is something that's a known threat, the aquatic industry absolutely supports disallowing sales of those to where, where they could become invasive. And I guess that's another question too, in terms of the, um, Maybe the science involved in terms of what is a threat, what isn't a threat. How sticky is that? <laughs> that is actually a great question. So I think there's three different levels that we're really talking about. There are introduced species where somebody has let their pet go into the wild. Then there are established species where that species has been introduced and is able to live out its life and reproduce. And then there, there is invasive where it disrupts the environment. And so there's a lot of kind of different potential ways and, and some things may not be as bad as others, I guess, is essentially what you're kind of saying. Right. Okay. Non-natives, I mean, releasing your pet into the wild is both cruel and illegal. Please don't do that. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to hit you up with more of these challenges, but I think we need to take a little break. So let's take a short break. We'll continue our discussion with Sandy Moore, president of Seagrass Farms, after these messages from our sponsors. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Pick up two tubes of Dogosuds. Get the third tube free. Peppermint, tea tree, lavender, Dogosud shampoo. Made with all-natural coconut, jojoba, aloe. Great for healthy skin and soft, shiny coats. But no itchy, harsh chemicals. Lather up, rinse away. Try Dogosuds. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Sandy Moore, president of Seagrass Farms. So, Sandy, we talked a little bit about Michigan and some of the national issues with non-native species. What are some of the issues occurring in Europe, and are, are any of those still kind of ongoing, and how would they affect us? What's happening in Europe right now is uh, PETA has a campaign in Germany right now to not hold fish in aquariums. That is, is getting some traction. So, there last year, there was legislation introduced to not allow the importation of any wild animal, including fish, into the country of Germany. And would they consider farmed fish to be wild as well in the definition? They would not, but you'd have okay. to prove that it was farmed. Okay, gotcha. So a lot of kind of a lot of really gray areas and, and difficulties with that kind of discussion exactly. or, or figuring that out. Right. Okay. Because very few fish are, are microchipped. Exactly. Okay, now I know, um, and we've talked about this you know, last year or the year before, the, the whole issue of listing clownfish and corals and, and how that may or may not be based on fact and on or best available problematic. Science. Yeah, exactly. Can you, can you <laughs> talk a little bit about the clownfish issue and, and the coral issue? Sure. The clownfish issue was actually came out much better than the coral issue. The science behind the coral listings was 
lacking, and that's to put it nicely. What they didn't have, what they didn't use, I think, would be the best available science. They were a group of people that were not coral experts guessing at whether or not corals could become extinct due to global warming. And how do they choose, yeah, and which, like how many corals, what do they, how do they choose these corals? Do you remember offhand or how, any of that? It was a Center for Biological Diversity petitioned NOAA to list the corals on the Endangered Species Act. NOAA didn't arbitrarily come up with this list. Okay. What's the story with them now? I'm not sure what the current status of that is. So that uh, right now is we're waiting on a 40 listing to understand whether or not those animals will be prohibited in trade. At this point, the ones that we know that will be prohibited already are prohibited because they're Atlantic corals and really are in danger. The Pacific corals are the ones that are listed as, as threatened, may or may not be threatened, but a threatened listing doesn't automatically exclude trade. Okay. So I guess bottom line, there's still a lot of, or there should be a lot more science involved with determining the actual status of some of these, especially the, a lot of the Indo-Pacifics. Absolutely. Right. So we worked uh, with Dr. Charlie Verone in Australia, who's the world's leading authority on, on corals, to provide NOAA with the science that they needed to back off of that listing. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the clownfish story? Maybe uh, you know, a brief about what happened and then what, we're, what the status is right now. Yeah, the clownfish listing, they did not list the Percula clownfish. It's Amphiprin Percula. They did not list them due to global warming. We were worried about that fish being listed, not because it's being over-harvested in nature. Probably 99% of all Percula clowns are being aquacultured. But a listing, there's no precedent that would allow for a farmed animal to be traded. So it would, for all intents and purposes, would disallow the, the trade of, of clownfish. So who was trying to, was that the same group trying to list and, and what was That was the, the same guess, group, right, Center for Biological it? Diversity. It's a group of, group of lawyers. And what were they trying to accomplish with a listing of farmed fish? Their business model is to petition NOAA to list animals on the Endangered Species Act. If they are successful, they can recoup their time and expenses from the government under the uh, Equal Access to Justice Act at a rate of, it's crazy, something like $650 an hour. So it's just about money. Okay. So another kind of hot button issue is, is yellow tangs in Hawaii. Now, there's a group, I guess, that is interested in trying to stop collection and trade of yellow tangs. Can you maybe speak a little bit to what the status, the scientific status is of the animals and, and maybe a little bit about the, uh, the controversy there? Yeah, definitely. Hawaii has one of the best managed fisheries in the planet. There are areas where collection is not allowed, either for ornamental fish or for food fish. They do population studies and what they have found from the population studies is even with increased harvest, it is not affecting the population. There was legislation that passed two years ago that disallows the take of yellow tanks that are less than an inch because in order to collect those, they're still in the corals. So you'd actually have to damage corals to collect those. And it limits the collection of yellow tanks over five inches because those should be left on the reef for broodstock. And we were very supportive of that. Okay. And the folks, I guess there was a group that wanted to basically prevent yellow tang um, collection. Maybe, uh, can you explain all that? Right. So the citizens of Hawaii are, are very split on this issue, on whether or not we should be allowed to take what is a natural resource. 
It provides jobs to uh, the fishermen. It is not environmentally impactful, but it is a natural resource. It also can interfere with uh, ecotourism, scuba diving, and, and rental of that equipment. So the scuba industry is not really crazy about the ornamental fish industry, and we are at odds. Okay, so definitely a kind of a, a tricky situation. Now, um, you and, and definitely and Seagrass Farms have been real involved with supporting rising tide conservation. Can you remind folks about rising tide, why it's important, and why this is exciting for you and for Seagrass to support? Absolutely. Rising Tides Conservation Foundation is a foundation that provides the science. They work on new species of marine fish, on how to breed them, and how to get the larval fish to settle out so they can be produced commercially, and then provides that to farmers in North America. We are very supportive of that. Our tank raised business in marine has, has gone from 5% five years ago to today we're at 11% tank raised. And that's obviously for the marine marine side because you're doing a right, lot of marine. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. No, that's great. And uh, I know uh, you guys have been really, really involved and instrumental with that. You know, there's a lot of issues we've discussed. Uh, before we maybe talk about what you think maybe hobbyists can do, can you look into the future and tell us where you think the hobby will be in 10 or 20 years from now? I think it's going to change. It's going to continue to change. It'll become probably more, there'll be more gadgets, but it will be easier as we understand more about the fish. I think that we'll go to more natural looking aquariums, more planted aquariums, aquascaped aquariums. I think freshwater right now is at 95% tank raised. I think we'll see that pendulum swing back as we understand how supporting wild harvest actually is beneficial to the environment and to the native people. It'll definitely change, but I don't see anything happening that's going to make it, that's going to be a bad change. Okay. What do you think about maybe the, the younger population? Do you think, do you see kids getting more involved? I know when, you know, when I was growing up, it was really a big, much more kind of common thing for, for kids to have aquariums. Now it's sort of a little bit under maybe because of all the electronics available and things, other things kids want to do. I think it's really important for kids to be exposed to nature. I think that they don't, they won't conserve what they don't know about. So it's our job is, as adults, as, as teachers, as educators, to continue to keep them exposed to it. I agree completely. And, and I know you guys have been involved as well with aquarium and the classroom type activities and, and yeah. helping provide materials and animals to teachers around you know, the U.S. And all that is very, very important. So all these issues, and I think, you know, I wanted to definitely talk with you because I think a lot of the hobbyists don't maybe necessarily see a lot of these kind of behind-the-scenes type issues. What can a hobbyist do to maybe have their voice heard, or what can they do to sort of be a little bit more proactive when we have some of these upper-level type issues come up? The best way for them to become involved is to uh, join us on the PJAC Aquatic Subcommittee, and that link will be provided uh, to you. I think it's, I believe it's pjac.org slash ADF. That helps us fund obtaining the science to fight, to fight legislative battles. We've just recently hired uh, Art Parola, a young hobbyist out of Kentucky, to help us communicate because each of the people on, on the uh, aquatic subcommittee are business leaders, and we're trying to do that as well. So our communication on PJAC has not been stellar, so we will improve that. 
Oh, that's a great idea, having uh, someone translate, basically, or, or right. speak to the, uh, the hobbyist. That's really great. So that's a really good thing to, for you know, everybody to kind of be more aware, I think, in general. And I, I'm glad you're providing the link and that um, information. Do you have any closing words of wisdom? Anything uh, you kind of want to tell everyone listening you know, that, that you think needs to be heard? Closing words of wisdom. I don't know how wise this is, but I think that I have the best job on the planet. It is a great thing to for your vocation and avocation to be the same. That is great, and it definitely, I think it probably speaks to why you're so passionate about any of the issues that may you know, harm the industry or cause some of these challenges that we were discussing. So really, really appreciate it. We're out of time, unfortunately. I want to thank our guest again, Sandy Moore, and our producer, Mark Winner, for making this show possible. Sandy, thanks again for your time. Uh, and uh, thanks, I know you're always running in and out uh, all over the nation and country and, uh, and, and internationally. So I'm glad you're able to make some time with us. I appreciate you having me on the show. So everyone, please be sure to check out Sandy's web links, which will be found on her Aquarium Mania episode page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio for additional pictures and comments. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and do your best to stay informed of any issues that may affect your hobby. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.